And Merry Christmas to all of you. Hope you have people say that to you about a hundred times this month. Never get tired of that. I'd like to speak this morning. We're going to start in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. I'd like to speak this morning on dying on the way to Bethlehem, dying on the way to Bethlehem. It is the most morbid title for a Christmas message I have ever come up with in my life. And you know, I rather like Christmas, and I'm feeling just fine. I'm, in fact, a happy camper today. But I want to talk to you about dying on the way to Bethlehem, on our way to Christmas worship, and to meet the Christ child personally. I want to talk to you about dying, because the town of Bethlehem in the Bible is associated, before it's a birthplace, it's associated with a burial place. It starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 35 and verse 19. So Rachel died, Rachel died, and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. First time Bethlehem's ever mentioned in the scripture. And it's associated with Rachel being buried on the way there to Bethlehem. And over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day, Jacob was her husband, and to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. And so I want to put in front of you this morning, before we come to take communion together and worship some more, I want to put before you the possibility of burying some things on our way in Christmas worship to Bethlehem this season, of burying some things. Now, Rachel's life just makes me scratch my head. Rachel, her life starts being described for us in Genesis 29 all the way here through verse 35, chapter 35 where she dies. And I just go, I look at Rachel's life and I just go, what? Because it was, it was so bittersweet. And, and, yet, and yet, I'm kind of fascinated by her life because there's something in his, her story that's probably in all of our stories as well. I mean, she started out um, sort of this most likely to succeed person. We're told that she was very beautiful. Jacob had several wives, but Rachel was his favorite. She, uh, I can imagine if she went to a high school way back there, she would have been voted most likely to succeed, and she probably would have been the problem queen. I mean, the scriptures are quite emphatic that she was an incredibly beautiful woman. She had the promise of a whole life ahead of her. But unfortunately, her family life was pretty complicated. I would call it mildly dysfunctional. Her family life involved a father you couldn't trust, who would lie, he'd connive, he'd cheat her, his hus her husband, he'd make her wait seven years to marry the man she loved, and then make her husband work another seven years after that, and then more years after that as he continued to rip him off financially. You couldn't trust what her father Laban would say. He'd make promises that he'd break. It was not a healthy family. 
Not a healthy family. And on top of it, Rachel was a tormented soul. Um, she was beautiful. She was favored by her husband. Uh, she did have, because of her husband's hard work, a materially pretty comfortable life. But her soul was tormented. Uh, some of you, as Sandy and I have in earlier parts of our lives, walked through the pain of infertility. It's a horrible pain. It's a deep one. And Rachel could bear no children. Uh, her sister, who Jacob also was given to in marriage, without Jacob knowing it, by Rachel's father, he was a jerk. Um, she was having all the children. Of course, Jacob's eventually 12 sons would become the 12 heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Her sister was having all the children. She couldn't bear children. She becomes so um, emotionally desperate to have children. The craving in her to have a child so insatiable that she once said to, Abraham, to, to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. And Jacob says, I'm trying. But am I God? I mean, she just was desperate. And finally it says God heard her. And she bore a child and named him Joseph, which in the Hebrew means, may he add more. This would be my paraphrase of jo Joseph's name. She bears finally her first son, and she names him, but I want more. It's just like this insatiable hunger inside of her. Her soul was just tormented over this issue of having children. And so eventually God gives her another child. But... Um, but it doesn't end well. And she experiences a painful death. Jacob, with his family, is on the road from Bethel to Bethlehem. And on the way, Rachel goes into labor with her second son. And it's not going well. She's incredible, in incredible pain. And... Uh, in the process of birthing a son, she dies. And just before she dies, she names him. In the Hebrew, Benoni. Ben means son. Benoni, son of my sorrow. And she dies. And Jacob buries her by the road on the way to Bethlehem. I read that story and I go, what was that all about? What a sorry story. And she names her son, the son of my sorrow, and gives up her last breath. I don't get the way it happens, but here's all the scripture, all that the scripture says. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Bethlehem. It would be interesting that on the Christmas we celebrate in the town of Bethlehem was born a baby who would grow up to become what the prophet Elijah, uh, Isaiah would call the son of suffering and the one who would be the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It's like something prophetic was happening way back there. As with her last breath, she names her son the son of sorrow, as she's on her way to the town where someday, much later, the son of God would be born and he would become 
the son of sorrows. And so all of a sudden, some dots start connecting in our heads. Like, could there be connections here? And I want to suggest to you this morning, and in fact, not just suggest, I want to make the case this morning that every one of us on our way to Bethlehem in our own Christmas worship this season, on our way to Bethlehem, maybe before new things are born, some things need to die. Some things need to die. Here's how my friend Greg Ford, casual friend of mine, I've met him personally. I heard him say this in a sermon personally that I'll tell you about in a moment. But he, he put it this way. Sometimes we need to bury things along the way in order to get where we're going. Sometimes we need to bury things along the way in order to get to where we're, bur- we're going. I heard him preach that at a conference at Calvary Church right by Dallas Airport in 2018. It was a conference sponsored by the Assemblies of God Church Planting Network, Church Multiplication Network. I was supposed to teach a workshop, one of the elective workshops at it later that day, and, and I, 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 I decided I'll wait till that morning to fly to Dallas, and uh, I'll get there in time for my workshop. And for some reason, uh, I decided to catch a 5.30 flight rather than a 7.30 flight to Dallas. It's only an hour flight. And when you catch a 5.30 flight, you got to get up at 3 in the morning. And you get up at 3 in the morning, you're kicking yourself and go, Bradford, why do you do these things to yourself? But I knew that if I got there, I guess at least the redeeming factor is I could catch the 9 o'clock main service that morning before the breakout electives. And so I went, and it was just a service, and it was, I was glad to be there, but I was really tired, and I was going, I don't know why I did this. And the speaker was Greg Ford that morning. He planted a church in Columbus, Ohio. He's been a part of Assemblies of God Church planting and influential person in that whole training of church planters. And it was March, and it was not Christmas time. And he said, I want to take you to Genesis chapter 35 and talk about our journey to Bethlehem and how that on our way to Bethlehem, we need to lay some things aside. Sometimes, he said, we need to bury things along the way in order to get to where we're going. It was one of those messages I'll probably remember the rest of my life. I can't even remember how he developed it. I think he was saying, when you plan a church, I mean, there's some things you're going to have to lay aside now to get there then. But it was at a time where I had two jobs. I had come back to Central to pastor here, been elected permanently, but I was still working next door as the General Secretary of the Sons of God. That was my full-time job. This was still my part-time job. But I knew that had to change really soon. And in fact, conversations had started and where I would lay my nine-year nine career aside and come to do this. I knew what the Lord had spoken to me about. I knew how he prepared my heart for it. But I didn't have any kind of biblical picture for it. I sat there and listened to Greg. And it was like Jesus said, this is the picture. This is the paradigm. I want you to look at what you're about to do. In fact, I ran into Greg in a crowd the next morning. I barely know him personally. He probably knew who I was because of my office. But all I had time to say to him was, Greg, that was an incredible message because God used you to give me the biblical picture for what I'm about to do. Because I said, Greg, I'm about to bury something. 
in order to get to where I need to go. And uh, then the press of people was so great, I couldn't finish the conversation. He must have thought I was crazy. But sometimes we need to bury things along the way in order to get to where we need to go. And this becomes part of the whole Christmas story. If you're even in junior high, you know already that some things are good, but other things are better. My mom made bologna sandwiches for me when I went to middle school. Either that or cheese whiz and pickle sandwiches. Had this affair with cheese whiz ever since. But what I learned that, okay, even a cheese whiz and pickle sandwich might be good in a way of speaking. But the hamburgers in the cafeteria line were better. And the problem is in life, often we hold on to what's good. And what's good is, becomes the enemy of what's better. I mean, there's all kinds of ways in which we just want to live safely, protectively. I only what's, want what's familiar to us. And God's opening us up into another whole year, 2024, which I think is going to be a brutal year in our world, but a wonderful year in our lives. And God said, I want you to let go of good, familiar, safe things so that those good things aren't in the way of the best things. It's not just bad things we have to bury. It's just good things. It's the clutter. It's the distractions. It's the time wasters. It's the useless habits in our lives that are keeping us reaching for our potential. Sometimes, my friend Pastor Ford said, sometimes we need to bury things along the way in order to get to where we're going. But sometimes it's more than just laying aside good things. Sometimes it's laying aside those things that right now are trapping us in cynicism and hopelessness. Listen, God wants to explode your life with purpose, joy, fulfillment, the peace that Pastor Anthony was talking about. And I want to invite you today to the very real opportunity to lay aside all of the enemies of that. In fact, here's a very depressing list. I call these the hope killers in our lives. Just think, we, on our way to Bethlehem this Christmas season, can lay these things aside in the name of Jesus. They kill hope. It's disillusionment with life. Maybe you feel like 2023 just beat the stuffing out of you, and you're just disillusioned with everything right now. Maybe it's uh, frustration with yourself. Man, I know what that's about. Maybe it's bitterness towards God. God, I don't know why you allowed this stuff in my life. Maybe it's impatience with waiting. Lord, I've just been waiting. When's that new job coming? When's that new opportunity? I feel like you promised me coming. I'm just waiting, waiting. That stuff can make you cynical. It can make, it can gut your hope. It can kill your hope. Maybe it's abuse you've experienced at the hands of other people, whether they be your employer, your neighbor, a religious institution. Maybe it's abuse that just killed your hope and made you cynical. Maybe it's risks you took and they failed because you can't grow without taking risks, but not all of them work out. And it can get pretty 
discouraging. Maybe it's crippling shame, that sense you've always lived with or other people have made you feel that you're just worthless and you're no value to anybody. Maybe it's the fear of the unknown of what's ahead. Maybe it's physical and emotional exhaustion where you just so depleted you can hardly pull out of bed in the morning. Maybe it's feeling out of control. And by the way, most things are out of our control just to just to clarify that. But the feeling of being out of control is awful. And these things make us cynical. They kill our hope. I feel this season a Christmas invitation on our way to worship at Bethlehem that this is the time to finally bury some things that are killing our hope. And it takes no talent to be cynical. But there's cynicism like I've never seen in our world. Let's, in Jesus' name, bury the cynicism. Let's bury the hopelessness. Because we're going to the place where the Son of God was born to set us free. On the way to Bethlehem, let's bury this stuff. Or just one more list and I'll be done. The lists. It's not, not only cynicism and hopelessness, but it's sin and uncleanness. The very stuff that keeps us insulated and isolated from the love and power of God. It's those secret lusts and greeds. Maybe you're burying them. We'll be burying them this Christmas season on the way to our worship of the Christ child. Maybe, maybe it's, it's your moment to finally say, I'm going to get serious with this stuff. I'm going to come clean with it. I'm going to do what it takes to deal with that stuff in my life. The lusts, the greeds, the persistent ad- addictions. Listen, in Jesus' name, you can be free. doesn't matter if you've been addicted for 40 years. You can still lay addiction aside and start making the decisions and having the faith encounters with the power of the Holy Spirit to set you free. Unforgiveness and destructive anger that just eats us up like corrosion from the inside out. Patterns of unbelief and unfaithfulness to the Lord. Spiritual apathy, even rebellion. I want to say... There are some things we need to bury along the side, along the way, in order for us to get to where we need to go, to get to where God wants you to go. These are the things. On our way to Bethlehem, some things, some things need to die. But starting at Bethlehem, a new tomorrow can live. But starting at Bethlehem, a new tomorrow can live. Here's the story. It's in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. And so Joseph also went up to the town of Na- from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, way down there in the south, to where? Bethlehem, the town of David. He too was going to take, like Jacob of old, he too was going to take a journey to Bethlehem. Except now, on that road to Bethlehem, unlike Jacob, he wasn't going to need to bury anything, but he, he would realize the birth of the Son of God, who himself would be buried so that we could live. And so he went up from the town in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, 
because he belonged to the house and line of David. Bethlehem was the town of David. Another pastor friend of mine, Eric Lehman, says, can you imagine what an inconvenience that edict from Caesar Augustus must have been? Wait, Joseph said, you mean travel 90 miles to Bethlehem at the tail end of Mary's pregnancy, all because Caesar wants to know how big his empire is? And then Eric suggests that some less than holy words concerning the, the emperor went through his mind. But what was really happening in Bethlehem? Hebrews chapter 2 in our New Testament really describes it powerfully. He says, since children, that's you and me, since we have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, too, shared their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power. He might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, this is what we call, we use a theological word, the, word, the incarnation. It's at the center of Christian belief and Christian theology. It's like carne, you know, meat, carne asada. I love that stuff. I mean, meat, flesh, meat. It said incarnation means that God stepped into flesh. Not to be half God, half man, but to be a totally God and totally man, totally divine and totally human. He, Jesus, the writer of Hebrews, said this is what was happening in Bethlehem because we're made of flesh. He stepped into our situation. He actually stepped into flesh just like you and I live in flesh. I hope we never lose the wonder of that. That the God who created heaven and earth so limited himself that he, the creator, stepped into his creation and, and took on flesh. And why did he do it? He did it so that he could take on death. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, shared in their humanity. He shared in their humanity. Now, when Adam was created in Genesis chapter 2, he was created a fully formed man. But Jesus in the New Testament is called the second Adam. And the second Adam didn't skip growing up. The second Adam, from conception by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb, all the way through birth in Bethlehem nine months later, he did it. Now, my new little granddaughter is just over two weeks old right now. All she does is sleep and eat. Once in a while, because I get pictures every day, once in a while she opens her eyes and makes funny little sounds. But she basically sleeps and eats. She can't change her own diaper. She can't feed herself. She can't do anything. Listen, the God of heaven and earth, the God of omnipotent power, he decided to not sidestep what we live with. He decided to enter, not as a fully grown man, but he entered through the womb of the Virgin Mary. He came. He, Hebrews said, because we are made of flesh and blood, he shared in our humanity. Why? Because when you're flesh and blood, you can die. And he died in our place so that he could break the power of him who holds the power of death itself and that's the devil. Listen, in middle school, I knew about high school bullies, uh, middle school bullies in the playground because 
I was often their victim. But Jesus stepped into the playground of our world and he beat up the bully. And he defeated the devil. The devil whose power over death, power to separate us eternally from God, the power, who, who led Adam to, to rebel against God and bring spiritual and physical death on the human race. Jesus came in flesh and blood so that he could die. And he could defeat the devil. And so that everything that needs to die in our lives that keeps us from him can also die and be buried on the way to our worship of him in Bethlehem. That's why Romans would say in Romans 6, Paul says in Romans 6 verse 3, or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his life? No, we were baptized into his death. Because some things just need to die. Look, we're not doing the Bible Belt thing here. I don't get up here and preach to you almost every weekend because uh, I like to do this, although I, I don't mind it. I don't do it so that you can go home and say, wasn't that a nice church service? And I can hope you come back and that you pay your tithes. Uh-uh. We're not doing the Bible Belt thing here. We're, we're not do. aren't you a nice little Christian because you uh, volunteer in a food pantry once in a while? We don't do that stuff here. My passion as a pastor, you'd be so alive with Jesus that you're leaving his fragrance everywhere you'll go this week. That you'll know you're God's person wherever you are, Thursday afternoon or, 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 or Wednesday morning or sitting in church or not sitting in church. I mean, we are talking about a life that is so transformed from the inside out that all of these hope killers, all of these sin separators from God, they can actually have a crucifixion. He died to defeat the power of the devil. And when we, Paul says, when we were baptized into Christ, we were baptized, first of all, into his death. Like that guy I've told you about before, I baptized years ago. He was in his 30s, life of addiction. Jesus transformed his life. He got baptized. I baptized him in front of a whole church congregation. He said, Pastor, would you leave me under for a few minutes? Well, he didn't say minutes. He just said a while. He left that up to me. So, will you leave me under the water? Because when you're baptized, you go back. That means you die. You go under. That means you're buried. He said to me, I want to make sure I leave my whole past life buried. Life, Christian life isn't a self-improvement project. The gospel isn't, isn't a, a, a looking prettier project. The gospel is that things die and get buried never to come back again because Jesus came to die and he defeated the devil. So I left the guy under for a while. I literally held it. People tend to float, so I had to hold him down until <laughs> everybody started squirming out in the church. Pastor's lost it. He's killing the flock. But I loved it. I've never forgotten it. So, Pastor, I just want to leave it all there. Buried. Listen, this is a transaction. This is a potent transaction we're talking about in the gospel. It's not just being an American Christian. It's not just having a decent life. It's about the Jesus who died, took on flesh and blood like you and me, in the incarnation at Christmas, so he could die and defeat the devil who wants to destroy you and send you to hell.
We were therefore, Paul goes on to say, buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was risen from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Even though the first association in the Bible of Bethlehem is with a burial, as Rachel was buried on the way to Bethlehem, I'm so grateful that the main association this morning that we have to Bethlehem is a birth, new life, hope. Someone wrote, in baptism, we're initiated, crowned, chosen, embraced, washed, adopted, gifted, killed, yes, but reborn, and therefore sent forth as God's redeemed. We love, we live, because he died in our place and defeated the devil and defeated death in his resurrection. We live, and this is our hope. So Rachel named her son Benoni, Genesis 35, as we end. As she, Rachel, breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Benoni, son of my sorrow. But his father named him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. It was a title of great respect. And it's amazing how God brings things around, even tortured, difficult lives like Rachel lived, where we find all of our stories. She was buried there, but it's not the end of the story. Years later, the Son of God would be born in Bethlehem to bring life. He'd, be, he'd become the man of sorrows so that we could be set free. And then years later, the Apostle Paul, who speaks to us through the books he wrote in the New Testament of our Bible, the Apostle Paul one day said in Philippians chapter 3, he said, I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. See, Jesus turns death and the stuff we scratch our heads about and the stuff that doesn't make sense to us and a seemingly pointless, dysfunctional, tortured life that a beautiful young woman experienced and then dying on the way to Bethlehem. God's got a way of turning it all around and still I still make my way. I still work my purposes through your life because I'm alive. Sometimes, my friend, Pastor Ford, said we need to bury things along the way in order to get to where we were going. And the reason we can do that is because Jesus died and was buried, and he lives today.